Corporation, Red Pill. You know us, you love us, because we take you beyond conspiracy theories right to the heart of conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host, Christopher Dean. Tis the season. Join us as we go behind enemy lines to reveal the truth about another aspect of this occult matrix. As we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing, the film over your eyes, the nightmare before Christmas. Is this cult classic film just the creative genius of a rather peculiar man? Or is it a small peek into the spiritual reality of our pagan holy days? We're going to talk about that and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill, the film over your eyes. Welcome back, ladies, gentlemen, everyone from across the podverse. Welcome to another segment of The Film Over Your Eyes, where we help you see the subtle messaging embedded in popular TV shows and films, many of which are aimed at reprogramming your mind so that you think less like Christ and more like Satan. But before we start unraveling and peeling back films and getting into all of the nitty gritty, gotta take care of first things first, and y'all know what that is. I gotta introduce my co-host. Mr. Christopher Dean! Oh, man, I love it. It's beautiful. Did you know that you had an in-studio crowd? No, I mean, I knew that we were growing in popularity. I had no idea. That you they know, were, it was like this, That they you? were lined up outside. That's, That's crazy. Right. In the cold, no less. <laughs> That's dedication right there, man. It is. That's funny. How you been, man? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Surviving the, the holiday season, you know, the holy day season. It's a little rough. Yeah. You know, we, we've got the spiritual aspect to it, mm-hmm. which, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll meddle through that. But then we also got the physical aspect to it because you and I are going through peak at our respective jobs. Yes. Yes, we are. Peak and, uh, season. Yeah, it is upon us, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I feel like we need a peak season. What? That's, That's not, not the, the right, right one. Peak season. Yeah, that's way better. Like, I was like, yeah. you turned us into Christmas elves? What'd you do? <laughs> right? Oh, oh, man. The joys and tragedy of modern technology, right? <laughs> Instantly got snipped. I was like, what happened? Yeah, that was bad. Oh, that's Whew. hilarious. We'll fix it in post. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hope so. Jeez. Right? So something in- interesting happened to me over the uh, the weekend. Okay, man, what's up? I was talking to some friends that I haven't seen in a while. Okay. And they were asking about the podcast and, you know, where can I find it and um, what's some of the stuff, things that you cover. This is a good conversation. So it had me, they had an iPhone. Okay. So I was like, oh, you can just go right here on your phone, you know, clickety, clickety, click. Right. And I was like, wait, what's this? What's this? (laughs) You sound like Jack (laughs) Skellington. Purely accidental, I'm sure. I'm sure. But we have uh, supporters that actually said things on our uh apple podcast really yeah i mean i'm not shocked that they said things i'm shocked that it's there because apple doesn't alert you right to the note they don't notify you that you have uh some reviews or, or any postings there yeah so it was a, a delightful surprise as i'm telling this person about our podcast i was like people like us listen oh. to what these people say <laughs> Uh, like it was a, a reading rainbow moment, like, <laughs> but, but don't take my word for it. Listen to these people. Right. Right. Uh, but since you haven't heard them, I thought, you know, we could read them on air and, and 
the, yeah, the supporters, listeners can get like a real time, uh, genuine response. Oh, from, that would be dope. From Jason Spears. All right, man, hit it. What we got? All right, so Cruzy Bear, interesting name. No judgment. Just I'm not sure I'm saying it right. C R U Z Y Bear. Yeah. That's what it is. Five-star review. Thank you very much. It says, The hard truths of this world presented with the hope of Christ by working through tough questions through a gospel lens. Easily my favorite podcast. Keep up the awesome work, brothers. Yo, that is dope. Right? No, wait, hold on. I'm more (laughs) upset that her language on how she wrapped up tough questions is better than what we say. (laughs) Like, I think we're going to have to lift that because that's dope. All right. Thank you, Cruzy Bear. It's really yeah, nice. You can really send fun. us an invoice if we decide if we use that for That's tough funny. questions. Uh, and then we have uh, Barons Forty Four. Okay. Says, uh, "Gotta say, these boys are dropping knowledge and doing it with humor and truth bombs. The excitement they bring to the topics makes this show a must in your rotation. Great job, gentlemen. Keep crushing." Yo, I love that. The keep crushing. He, he, he referenced <laughs> the snakeheads. Yeah. I love it. Uh-huh. It was great. And then the, the last one that we have on here, uh, Jay Montana Rocks. Okay. Says, uh, do you wonder if the Bible is relevant today? Does it matter? Maybe not. Everyone loves a great movie with top-notch actors. So check these guys out. It'll enrich your movie experience, regardless of what you think of God or the Bible or any religions. No one likes to be duped. But these guys make you really think. Thoroughly entertaining and thought-provoking. Oh, that is dope. Yeah. that's cr- Okay, so who are these three people talking about? I, I think it's us. I mean, it's on Operation Red Pill. And that, that's, I think I mean, that's ours, right? Yeah. That's crazy. Uh-huh. It's like they know us. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really dope, man. I, I love that. I'm really glad. Uh, first off, thanks for checking that and sharing it. But also to uh, our supporters, thanks for taking a moment and actually uh, dropping us a line like that. We really appreciate that and love reading those things. Um, if anybody else wants to, to hit us up, you can always send us an email at let's talk at orppodcast.com. And you can hit us up on Instagram at orppodcast. Love hearing from you. And if uh, either one of those don't work, you just want to go ahead and broadcast your feelings to the rest of the world and drop a review like the other three uh, supporters have done, and we'll we'll read it right here on air. Yeah. But to everyone, thanks so much for your support. It really means a lot. Yeah, it does. It's so encouraging to see that over the weekend. We love encourage. We love encouragers. Well, yeah, we love encouragers, supporters, listeners, whatever. Especially the ones that are fans of Nightmare Before Christmas. But I gotta say, I don't get their affection for this film. No, we love the supporters. We're glad you're listening. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> when it comes to the nightmare before, oh my god it was a nightmare a little bit a little bit and it it was really interesting for me because i was kind of uh in school i was like the outcast the the band geek okay um, i can see it like artsy kind of whatever and everyone loved this movie and and, and mm. my and my mom was kind of strict growing up mm-hmm. um so it wasn't available to me okay. as a child, I never pursued it that much. I didn't care. But for preparation of this episode, I was like, okay, I actually get to sit down and really invest the time, see what everyone was talking about all growing up, all through school. Like this was this was the thing. They loved it. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. I, I, I was gonna ask you. So wait, you said you, you don't get it. I, I, I don't. Nightmare I don't. before Christmas. I don't. I, okay. Well, I tell you what. 
we got to go ahead and peel back the film from these people's eyes when it comes to Nightmare Before Christmas because we need people to see it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Here's what I need. No BS. Give me your popcorn and butter assessment. <laughs> okay. One tub, two tubs, or are they both empty? Uh, well, I mean, I'd say two tubs, both empty, because I wasn't doing anything else to get enjoyment out of this. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be overly critical. Like, I know a lot of people like it and, and thoroughly enjoy it. I just. Right, because you got to be careful, man, because I know what it's like. To have somebody mess with your sacred cow. I do that to you all the time. Yeah, I know. And I, I've had people, you know, I don't think the love of Christ is in them because they don't seem to have good sound discernment when it comes to quality films because they don't find the cinematic pristine jewel that is Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick. They don't find it interesting. Is that really the unforgivable sin? Yeah. You know, we got some <laughs> listeners. <coughs> So sorry. Got, are, you, are you feeling all right? Oh, man, I got something stuck in my throat. <laughs> it must be that Christmas spirit. I'm saying, whew. <laughs> yeah, they, they they just don't like these films. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? This this is an excellent movie. Both of them. Yeah. But I know it's like when you got a film that you like and a person is like, I'm not feeling it. And they start going down their list. I'm not trying to do that. Okay. Right. So my personal feelings, I'm going to just say it right out, right out front. Uh, I wasn't a fan of of this movie for mm-hmm. two reasons. One, I, I don't really like stop motion animation. Okay. That's the first thing. That's a big setback. It is. And there's only one film that I've ever seen that I I was able to get past it and actually enjoy the film. I want to say it was Frank and Weenie. Okay. So it's another Tim Burton flick. That's right? a Tim Burton one? Yeah. Okay, that one I didn't buy. Interesting. I didn't know it was Tim Burton. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Um, but I, I was able to deal with that one. But all the other ones I've seen across life, like the the classic Santa Claus Rudolph, I like that one actually. Cannot stand it. Interesting. It all, to me, it always felt like cheap animation. And by cheap, I was like they couldn't afford to hire people to draw, so they got these people <laughs> to do this half. I can't even say it on the show. This 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 half done, half yeah. baked. Thanks. That'll work. <laughs> it's very friendly, family friendly <laughs> euphemism there. Uh, this I was right back to my default. <laughs> This half-baked rendition of of animating. And I'm like, no, gosh, I can't stand it. Like, their motions are not smooth. They're jerky. All that stuff got on my nerves. And it reminded me of old forms of animation. Yeah, you know what's really funny is one of the first books that I ever read, because my older brother had it, it was about dinosaurs in Hollywood. Okay. And the only reason I read it is because the cover was this sweet picture of a dinosaur. But it was way, way past me like way over my head okay but it was interesting in this book they highlighted the fact that this stop motion style of animation when they when they joined live action and the stop action with like dinosaur films and stuff Uh excuse me they would put like um like airbags in them so it looked like they were breathing 
Okay. And then they would also, when they bled, they would use chocolate syrup and it was black and white. Oh, so you couldn't tell. You couldn't tell. People actually thought they were real dinosaurs. You're kidding. Uh Uh-uh. Seriously? Yeah. I mean, now when we look back, we're like, wow, that's Play-Doh and hot chocolate. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. But it was so innovative at the time that, yeah, a lot of people were like, wow, we really found an island with dinosaurs and stuff on it. That's wild. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine people falling for that. I mean, if you didn't, I mean, if all you had was black and white TV. I guess. I mean, I'm still dealing with the generation that thinks that that's how everybody saw the world. So, right. you know, what what can we say? I, I'm not judging. I'm just a little surprised. I mean, yeah, it, it is surprising, but you can kind of see a a fresh-faced, naive public to this new technology of the TV. I got you. Kind of getting swindled by it. Yeah, I I can see that. i tell you one thing. Even though I'm not a fan of stop-motion animation, Mm -hmm. I do appreciate the amount of precision that has to go into it. Okay. Uh, To to figure out, based on how many frames that you're going to be recording, how much movement needs to happen in that frame is actually pretty cool. And then to have to reposition the the clay models mm-hmm. over and over and over. So you, I'm guessing you probably never did stop motion as a child. I don't want to say that because we did a lot of projects in Latchkey. Okay. And I think that we may have done something like that. <laughs> but it still would have driven me nuts. Okay. Sorry, I'm... I'm I just don't have, like, the patience level for it. Okay, me and my brothers did, and that's the reason I laughed. I, I remembered this this scene that we had filmed. I had a bunch of Star Wars characters, right? Okay. So, and, and like you had clay characters? No, no, no. Action no. Characters? So it wasn't claymation, but it was stop action. So we just took the action figures and we oh, and we laid out a scene. Okay. And then moved them a little bit and the old camcorder you had to hit record and then let it click like a second. Okay. And then turn it off and then move. And we actually, I mean, I remember summers consumed with doing this. Really? Yeah. And one of the funniest moments, just like I busted out laughing a second ago, is Nathan was R2-D2. And in order to get, like one of the tricks was to have dialogue because no one can move while you're talking, right? Okay. So it's always like a still when the characters are saying something back and forth. But he was doing R2-D2 and live he interpreted R2-D2. So he goes. Oh, so he does. So the we're, sound? Re- we're recording, and Nathan goes, "Deet delete, deet, deet delete, deet is Luke." And I was like, "Did you just stroke out? Like, what just happened?" <laughs> Switch languages right on the spot. I was like, oh, "Okay, that's funny." It was really interesting to me, though, even at the at that age, that he was speaking like R two D two with beeps and squawks, but in his mind. He could carry on the actual language. Yeah, he knew what he was actually yeah. saying. I was like, wow. I was going to say, it's actually pretty pretty dope when you break down what you have to do in order to make that make sense. Uh-huh. You have to know what the in- unintelligible sound actually means. Right. And be able to immediately translate that within the context of a conversation in order for the dialogue to make sense between two characters. Uh-huh. That's a highly dysfunctional person. That's a junior <laughs> psychopath. <laughs> Yeah, what you had on your smart head. but psycho. Yeah, like, <laughs> but no. So we had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, that's kind of the beauty though of of playtime. Mm-hmm. Somebody once said that children need 
they need work mm-hmm. and they need structure time as much as they need play time. Okay. Because play time helps to reassimilate information in the child mind into useful, uh, useful content. And they do it through play. Okay. And I could actually appreciate that because I remember when I was a kid, every action movie that I saw, I would go home and reenact with GI Joe's. Okay. Right. And then Uh I would make variations of the movie using GI Joe's. Interesting. And I had the sound effects had to be right. The angles had to be right. There was, there was slow motion. You know, the way I would look at the GI Joe, I'm like, Oh, he's falling in slow motion. He would like literally fall slowly. Uh-huh. You know, all of that cinematic stuff that's going on in my head and it's being acted out through these, um, lack of a better term, avatars. Okay. But can... it's still building the cognitive qualities. Uh-huh. And I've noticed even as I've gotten older, I still carry those visual cues that I learned as a kid. Okay. Even when, when manipulating different objects. Like I remember it's because I'm such a fan of Top Gun, there would be scenes where the aircraft, you, the camera looks at an aircraft and it's getting ready to turn, like bank to the side. Mm-hmm. But because the filming aircraft is still maintaining a forward motion, it looks like the camera that's in frame just slides out, like slides back out of frame. Okay. It took me years to figure out what literally is happening, which is that that plane is banking out of camera, not sliding back because it's getting ready to make a turn. Oh, okay. Right? So I would be playing with uh, model airplanes. And if I my plane had to turn, I would uh-huh. just pull him back like he lost speed. Because <laughs> it visually looked like that. Right. It took me a while to be like, oh, no, he has to turn. So you get, that's why they call banking left or banking right. So like, now funny. it makes sense. Or if I was playing with um, Hot Wheels. He had a Hot Wheels car that was close up. Uh-huh. My car was kind of like, mm. he'd be right in the front. He'd be really close to me because that's how it would be in the camera. Okay. Right when you're watching a film. Uh-huh. And so I moved the car back and forth, like, you know, the front of the film is <laughs> front of the camera's moving across the front of the car. And all of a sudden, and I would go past my head because my head's the camera. Like, if you were watching me, I would look insane. Uh huh. But in my mind, as a visual person, I'm shooting the movie. That's cool. Right? Interesting. It's it's funny. Uh huh. Because then I remember watching um, Die Hard, Live Free or Die Hard. Okay. Okay. I, some people hate the scene where he throws the, the car at the helicopter. I'm one of those people. <laughs> Whatever. It's a cool scene. <laughs> but just before that, they're racing the, the uh, cop car. I think actually it's just after that. They're racing the cop car. And there's a scene where the camera car crosses paths with the cop car that's coming in frame. And the cop car turns like hard left and the camera turns hard right. To come in right behind the cop car, right? Okay. And it makes this really cool pan motion where the back of the cop car swings across the front of the camera lens. And because the camera car is following in the same path, it's like the audience gets swung in right behind the cop car, which creates a huge sense of speed okay. for the audience, uh-huh. right? It's it's a cool visual trick. Right. I remember doing that with my cars, but I'm, and I'm coming right in behind the car <laughs> looking retarded. But to me, in the first person point of view, I just reenacted Die Hard. I should get an Oscar for my cinematography skills. Yeah. It's crazy how God makes the mind. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Because I would have never, even though I actually shot scenes, Uh I never would have played with toys with the idea that my eye is the camera. 
That's interesting. It is because now my as I've gotten older as an adult, my eye is still the camera. Okay. And I have to turn that off. <laughs> like I'll walk up on my truck and I'll be like, bad angle. I don't like that angle. <laughs> this looks like an old man truck. I'm not feeling this. I need so you, a new vehicle. You have to walk all the way around the parking lot. I so really you do. can approach your truck from the, the right, right angle. angle. <laughs> right? Because I came up on my truck and I was like, uh, my sister was telling me I was complaining about my truck. She was like, shut up. You have a whole truck. I was like, a whole truck? Like, I feel like I need a 2,500. You know what I mean? I need, I need a super duty. I mean, always a little bit more. You need that. And that's not greed. That's just proper appreciation. That's what you need. Okay. So my sister's like, shut up. You have a whole truck. I'm like, a whole truck, not a half? She was like, yes, a whole truck. <laughs> I walked out of the place where I was talking to her. And I happened to, we were on the phone. And uh, I walked to my vehicle, and it had been raining a little bit. And I don't know, for whatever, in the rain, my truck looks bigger and a little bit meaner with the drops of water on it, just a little bit more cinematic. Okay. And it's just sitting there kind of taking the weather like, I got it. Don't worry about it. You're going to be okay. <laughs> I walk up, and I was like, I do have a whole truck. <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. All right. Still have that camera eye. So when it comes to the nightmare before Christmas, I can appreciate some of the things I saw visually, even though I still hate the animation style. Okay. That makes sense. Because it's got to be way more difficult. I I imagine you have to do a lot more storyboarding in order to maintain the the type of uh, look to the film Mm -hmm. because you're not doing live action. Right. I think that's got to be way more time consuming and patience inducing. Inducing. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine it would take a long time. And then uh, you had me watch the, uh, was the the movies that made us or whatever. I was going to say that on on Netflix, the special Uh films that made us, they do a whole breakdown of the behind the scenes on the nightmare before Christmas. And it was, it was interesting. Like right? the, the way that, you know, how do we, do we do the songs first? How do we animate the songs? And then, you know, matching up the the lyrics and everything. Like it, it was a lot of stuff that I hadn't considered that, that yeah. made me appreciate the production process, the production process. Yeah. There's the same thing that happened with me. Yeah. I, I, unfortunately I appreciated that more than I did the actual film. Right. Right. But it's cool. I think people who have Netflix should actually go look for that. Uh, it's called the film. It's not the film over your eyes. No, that's fi- us. Right. The films that made us. Okay. I, I don't remember which season it is. Three or four, maybe? Um, I'm not sure. If I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. So people can see. Awesome. Uh, so let's get into this a little bit. When, when we get into something, we mentioned it a little bit, maybe in one of our super early episodes, the seven lies that our children are being taught. Okay. And um, Elizabeth Urbanowicz has foundationworldview.com, which produces really, really intelligent uh, homeschool curriculum. But she was saying that when, when you actually begin to educate children, she said she found out that they were asking, like, well, let's, let's find out what the worldview of this movie is. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I was like, yeah, I do that too. <laughs> right. But it actually had me thinking when you go into something, especially if we're doing a film over your eyes, you know, we talk about the problem of the protagonist and the fact that we tend to sympathize with the point of view from which the story is being told. Right. There's another aspect I think that we should consider, and that is trying to, and it's actually a lot of fun, is trying to discover the worldview. Like, what are the actual dynamics in this world that I'm being introduced to? 
it's funny. As soon as you say that, I'm sitting here thinking, all right, that's going to be hard. Or, you know, it'll be a little difficult to do only because it will require not falling victim to the suspension of disbelief. Right. You, you've you got to, keep, to your keep your wits mind, about you. Right. You have to keep your mind actively engaged. Yeah. In order to pull that off. So one of the times I really remembered getting a glimpse in the worldview, which was kind of fun, is The Unit. Okay. The series The Unit is a... Phenomenal. Phenomenal series. Was it on Hulu? Yeah, I think it's on Hulu. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it is a staple foundation of Operation Red Pill. Absolutely love it. So I was watching it, and, and as you know, Jason, it's the typical, like, special ops, you know, four-man squad just going in, tearing stuff up, being awesome, right? You get the the... The, the discipline, you get the precision, you get the manliness, right. you know, it's, it's great. It, I mean, there is for, for those that are watching with significant others or mixed genders. I mean, there's lots of drama and you get to see the girls at home and you know, it's, it's not all just uh explosions. Bang, and, bang. Yeah. Unfortunately. Right. There, there it's, is, it's, a, it's a well-rounded show. Yeah. I was going to say there is a, uh, a subplot and a B story yeah. that they're constantly telling uh, along with all of the action. Yeah. Very, very, very good. But from this uh, seemingly naturalistic setting, right? Like you're dealing with the military and you're dealing with the discipline and relational issues. So you have the uh, kind of just relational drama at home. And then you have these men training and going out on missions. So deal geopolitics a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. And that, Kind of seems like that's the extent of it. But then they start going, and there's a couple episodes where they have a bad omen, right? Yeah. Where they have dreams right. and, and the, the person's spouse. And it's subtle. Like it doesn't, it definitely doesn't overtake it. I would in no way say that this is a like science fiction series. Right. But there are hints to the fact that in this world of the unit, because as anytime you make a media like this, you are creating the world from the ground up. In this world, there is some supernatural goings on in the midst of all the other stuff. And I was like, interesting. You know, now that you say that, because I didn't pick up on that. The okay. First, like four times of watching this series. <laughs> I'm like, man, I'm rusty. I should have I picked up. But I, I got funny. drawn into it. It was too good. Okay. But you're absolutely right. They do hint at metaphysical events and activities occurring even within the the scope and purview of the military unit that they follow. Right. But it also then gives a nod to the fact that these things might actually be real. Mm-hmm. Because again, like you said, it's not science fiction. Right. Which then gives the viewer the information of understanding this is the perspective that the storytellers see the world. Okay. And that's important to understand. It's important to realize that with anything that you you watch. Right. I would agree. No matter how benign it may seem, there's always a worldview perspective that is coming across from the content creator. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of fun to look at, you know, to, to really kind of pay attention to 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 the depth and, and the, the width yeah. of what you're watching behind the, the film or the size of your TV. <laughs> that's funny. So, well, hold on. There's like this thing that we do uh, that I know you're familiar with because of your job, but it's the five keys of the Smith system. Uh huh. One of them is get the big picture. Okay. And that's what you have to do when you're sitting watching. 
Yeah, the other uh, one is okay. aim high and steering. So you have to look out beyond just what's right in front of you and look down the road, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to kind of translate that over into the visual space of what you're watching. You have to get the big picture of what you're being shown, what you're being shown, but you also have to aim high in your steering as you're going through the film. You can't just be concerned with what's right in front of you. You've got to kind of anticipate or see ahead what's coming. Okay. I like that. You know, it's funny. There are three more and I can apply these to film, <laughs> but I don't want to. Okay. I was going to put you on the spot because I don't know what, I mean, for anyone listening, I know what they are. I just you can't readily remember them. I don't think I have to answer them. <laughs> Aim high and steering, get the big picture, keep your eyes moving, leave yourself an out, make sure they see you. Okay. All right, I got to do this. Slight tangent. And then I promise we'll get into Nightmare Before Christmas. When I did my defensive driving, mm-hmm. uh, they, they did, you know, the whole aim high and all of that. Yeah. And this dude, he says, he has a stand in the middle of the room, and he's like, here's why it's important. And he has his look at the seam where the floor meets the wall. Okay. And he goes, what do you see? And I was like, the floor and the wall. And he's like, cool. Now look at the top and look where the ceiling meets the wall. And he's like, what do you see? I was like, well, I can actually see the whole wall. I can even see the floor. And I was like, wait, how? I know you're trying it now. Yeah, it's freaking me out. <laughs> like, I look so retarded, but yeah, I'm really doing it. And I'm like, it's crazy. When you look up, you still can see more of what's at the bottom part of your, your viewing. Um, I want to say viewing angle, but that wouldn't be the right word. Yeah. And you're messing. Your viewing with- limit. Right. You're, you can still see what's what's on the lower end, but if you look lower, you cannot see what's on the upper end. Okay. And in perfect Jason style, you ruined what I was about to say. Because you're doing it sitting down. I was going to say that it took me forever to figure out that it's actually the angle at which you, you were looking. So it's less of an extreme angle when you're looking up. If, okay. you're, if you're over four foot tall in an eight foot ceiling, right? Right. So it's all about the angle. I was like, this guy messed me up because it's just the angle. It's just, a, it's nothing special about the eye. It's just the angle. And you're sitting down and you're like, wow, it's happening right now. I was like, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> no clue. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm, aim, I'm aim high because apparently we don't know how eyes work on Operation Red Pill. <laughs> That's hilarious. All right, so. Nightmare Before Christmas. Yes, before they leave us, we get a negative review. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. So we have Jack Skellington. He plays the protagonist. So immediately, if we're going into it, we go, all right, this seems like he's the protagonist. We got to pay close attention because he's who I'm going to sympathize with, right? Right. So he is the... the Pumpkin King, he's known by a bunch of different names. Jack Skellington, the Pumpkin King. He even, even says that he is a demon of light. Did you I pick up on that? Because he doesn't mention it a lot throughout the film. Right. It's right in the middle of one of these uh, song moments. Uh-huh. That he, it's a lyric that he references. And I'm like, oh, interesting. Demon of light. Yeah. yeah. They slipped that in there real smooth like. Uh-huh. I'm the master of fright and a demon of light, and I'll scare you right out of your pants. So immediately I'm like, "Eh, I really don't want to sympathize with this dude. Right. So essentially what happens, if there's anyone that hasn't seen the movie, spoilers, there's not really a lot to spoil, but (laughs) sorry. Ouch. We weren't going to do, uh, anyway. Anyway, he is the uh, Pumpkin King. 
and he lives in this place called Halloween Town, and it all kind of centers around Halloween. Like, they prep all year for Halloween, they celebrate, they scare, they do their thing, and he's like the, the, the head honcho. Right. There's a mayor of the town, but he's the head honcho. And the movie takes place in this period where he's like, I'm kind of sick of doing this. I don't really want to scare people all the time. There's got to be something more. So he goes into this number, you know, what is this? What is this? As he ventures into other realms outside of Halloween Town. Right? Yep. What I find really interesting is the portals at which... So, okay, let me back up. He ex- He's walking away in despair, singing a song. You know, he wants something more and ends up in this grove of trees. Right? Yeah, kind of like a haunted forest-like. Yeah. And there's these um, images, I guess. Did you say images? Yeah, kind of like en- engravings. Engravings on the trees. That have been painted into the tree. Yeah, and one for each holiday. And there also was a significant, whatever the cultural symbol of that holiday was, was also on the ground in front of that respective tree. Oh, was it on the ground in front of it too? Yeah. So I think like for Thanksgiving, there was a turkey that was on the tree, but then there was a pilgrim hat, like a Quaker hat. Oh, on the ground in front of it. That I didn't notice. That's interesting. uh, Each one of those had something like that. Uh, The the one for, what do they call that? Uh, When you can't wear green. Or you get pinched. St. Patrick's Day. Thank you. I was I was so close, dude. No, you know you don't understand what I was struggling on. I was like Lucky Charms Day. <laughs> you can't wear green. You're supposed to wear green. Well, I was gonna call it Lucky Charms Day. Wow, your racism is just just leaked all the way out, right? Yeah, all the way. So I was like, but that's not it. It's not Lucky <laughs> Charms Day. What is it called? That's and funny. I was like Fighting Irish. I was like, no, that's not the t- either. <laughs> I was going through my whole like Rolodex. Oh, that's funny. Oh, so I'm so glad you helped me with that. Yeah. But yeah, for uh, St. Patrick's Day, where you are supposed to wear green, uh-huh. not that you can't, uh, they had a four-leaf clover, I believe, on the on the tree. Okay. And then they had something else on the ground. I don't know if it was a pot of gold or something. Interesting. I didn't notice the, the, the glyphs on the ground. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, so there's this, it's in a grove of trees. And I was like, this has got to be significant. Because this is where he kind of escapes Halloween Town, mm-hmm. and this is where we start to get a view, a a picture of the the worldview of of the universe that we're watching, right? Okay, how so? Well, because before he's just Halloween Town, so it just seems like this is the environment, right? Like everyone's kind of uh, not distorted, but contorted. Like the mayor has two faces. All the the kids in Halloween Town are wearing masks. Everyone's kind of scary. There's right. severed heads. It's very Tim Burton esque. I think it's all black, white, and orange. It's a bit dark too. Yeah, because uh, I mean they've got skeletons hanging from trees. That that was one that bothered me personally. I I didn't know if that was a subtle uh, double entendre. <laughs> I was a little nervous. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but they they had stuff like that. They had the guy with the two faces that were spinning. I didn't know if he was like Two-Face from Batman or or, or what have you. Okay. Because there is a connection, believe it or not, between Nightmare Before Christmas and Batman. Well, Tim Burton did Tim Burton did both films. Right. And he was even doing Batman Returns, right? Yeah. At the same time that they're doing uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Exactly. So I I didn't know if he was maybe making a subtle inference to to two-face and all of that okay who doesn't even show up in, in the second batman he shows up in the third but but that being stated yeah they the different characters in halloween town had a bit of a, a monster s to them right 
which I picked up on. So it, it seems to me as I'm watching it, I go, okay, this seems like, especially because Jack calls himself the demon of light. Yeah. Yeah. And the pumpkin king. Like, I think when he first shows up, he's wearing a flaming jack o' lantern on his head, right? I don't remember. I think so. In the in, in the in the sequence that he first comes in and he's doing all this scary stuff as they're doing the Halloween parade. But he's okay. wearing a flaming jack o' lantern on his head. So I'm like, okay, I'm making connections right away. I'm like, his name's Jack. He's wearing a jack o' lantern on his head. He's the pumpkin king. Oh, now he's the demon of light. And all these other looking like evil spirit-esque things. I was like, this must be the spirits behind the holiday. Because I don't see any normal people yet. Interesting. Yeah. I, was I like, hadn't picked up on that yet. Yeah. So he's, it, it seems as I'm watching, I'm going, okay, this must be the spirits behind. Because even Jack Skellington like takes his head off. So he's not really alive. There's, there's a, an undead aspect to Halloween Town already. Okay. So then there's this, he goes to this grove of trees where there seems to be a portal to all these other towns based off of holy days. Yeah. I was like, all right, now it's getting interesting. Because as, as you know, like sacred groves are a big deal in paganism. They are. I don't know if most people know why, though. This is true. I got a snippet. Can I read it? Go ahead. About sacred groves? Yeah, what you got? So it says sacred groves or sacred woods are groves of trees, and they have special religious importance with particular cultures. Sacred groves feature in various cultures throughout the world. They were important features of the mythological landscapes and cult practices of the Celtic, Estonian, Baltic, Germanic, Ancient Greek, Near Eastern, Roman, and Slavic polytheism. They also occur in locations such as India, Japan, uh, such as like uh, the sacred shrine forests, which I thought was interesting. West Africa and Ethiopia, the church forest. Examples of safe, sacred groves include the Greco-Roman, uh, how do you pronounce that, Jason? Do you know? the Termonus, it looks like. I'm not sure. Okay. Tinnemus. Maybe. If, there, if there's a listener out there that knows, maybe. Yeah, T-E-M-E-N-O-S. Right. But various Germanic words for sacred groves and the Celtic um, Namitan, which was largely but not exclusively associated with Druidic practices. So here's one thing that I both love and hate about Wikipedia. Okay. I'm assuming that's where this came from. This definition. I, I, be, I believe so. It's, I haven't it's got, cited like, it right here in the notes, but I think it is Wikipedia. It's got Wikipedia-esque formatting to it. Okay. You don't like it? No, that's not my issue. My issue is that when you... Wikipedia is such a great place to go to get information, right? Mm -hmm. But then so oftentimes the quality of information that I'm looking for is lacking. Okay. They normally will give me fairly detailed secular definitions. Okay. Which doesn't really help me get a in-depth understanding of particular things or nuances that I need. Okay. So like this whole thing about sacred groves, while all that may be true, mm -hmm. doesn't really explain why it's so significant. Okay. It tells me that it was, but I'm missing the why. And the why is probably the most important part of the whole equation for me. Okay. I have some information to add, and then you can tell me if it answers your question. Oh, okay. is that Is that cool? By all means, Wikipedia 2.0. <laughs> so I had no idea that it was such a widespread idea of sacred groves. 
Like yeah, I, I mean, Sacred Groves is pretty pretty synonymous to the Haunted Forest motif. Yeah, but I didn't I didn't realize that. Like that's okay, why I, I took you. that clip because I was like, wow, I thought it was like just the druids, right? Okay, like just one small group. And I was like, wow, it's really like all over pagan culture. Like this is this is a thing that they recognize. But that the especially the druids they worship trees, mm-hmm. which is what gives the um, the idea of like a grove of trees significance. So like the oak tree is strong, so they they worship it and praise the oak tree or whatever because it has strength. Hollywood is what they used to make their wine their wands after, which is why Hollywood is called Hollywood because they cast spells from there. Um, so tree worship was kind of essential to, I think they call that nature worship, nature worship. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, you're spot on. Okay. Does that help? Or do you have, do you have more? Um, like if I, if I had encountered that definition, that would help, Mm -hmm. but I still think it misses the core for why it's so important, even to various magic cultures. Okay. And the real reason, from my understanding, goes back to Genesis 6. It goes back to Mount Hermon. Because on the top of that mountain, as I understand, is actually, uh, I don't want to say a forest, but there's groves of trees. And so this mountain is where the renegade contingent of angels left. There's 200 Watcher class angels descended from, uh, from Lucifer's camp. And landed on Mount Hermon. And they made a pact there. And part of what they decided to do was, under pain of curse, was to actually institute what we call paganism, like universal occult religion. Okay. But they also introduced magic. They introduced the 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 working of herbs and roots. They introduced the art of seduction, the art of war. Many of the things that color our culture experiences now and create the type of chaos and destruction and catastrophes that we experience came from the system of evil that they instituted on top of Mount Hermon. And on the top of that mountain is said to be actual groves. Interesting. So if this is the central place on the planet to which the systems of evil are spread out over various nation states throughout or through their their Nephilim God King overlords, mm-hmm. then it would carry the same basic fingerprint. Okay, you follow me. So uh-huh. if you're teaching like uh, if you're teaching, I'm going to call it woodworking, but that's not what it's it's not what it's called. If you're teaching the magic arts of root working, okay, that would be synonymous to like nature magic. If you're teaching the manipulation of certain elemental aspects of creation, you know you're you're passing on that forbidden sacred knowledge. Okay. And because that environment was such, I think it carries that level of significance throughout the various cultures influenced by it. Interesting. Now there's a guy and this was kind of funny. Well, not funny. This was actually interesting. I think I sent you, and this had to be probably about a year or two ago, a clip of a evangelist who was, who was doing a, um, what do they call that when you cast out a demon? Exorcism. Exorcism. Mm-hmm. I started to say execution. I was like, that's not what he was doing. <laughs> uh, but he was doing an exorcism. And it was interesting because before he actually cast out the demonic entity, he asked some questions. And one of the questions I believe he asked was, 
something along the lines of where do you rank within the kingdom of darkness, like demons as a whole? Okay. And they said they're pretty low. In fact, even trees have more authority on earth than we do because they're part of God's creative order. Interesting. That's what I said. I'm like, I mean, I'm not going to take it as the guy's gospel, uh-huh. but it was very interesting how right. it's viewed apparently from the other side. Huh? So like I'm, I said, <laughs> this is my problem with Wikipedia. Wikipedia doesn't provide me Jay Spears answers. This is true. So you, you only get those from the source. Yeah, it's it's a rough one. <laughs> I got to send them invoices. So I find it interesting in this movie that it's a grove of trees in which these supernatural portals to these different spirit realms. Right, right, right. I, I, was, I like, was like, oh, no, I'm catching what you're putting down. It's, that's subtle. Uh-huh. But it's not lost on me that the portals are established inside of a sacred grove. Uh-huh. Interesting. Right. So then in the movie, Jack goes to Christmas Town. And that's where he sees all this bright stuff and snow. And now I think this is an important distinction to make here. I was under the impression that when he went through this tree that had the Christmas tree on it, mm-hmm. I thought he was going to like Christmas time. Okay. Right? Uh huh. Like not a Christmas world. Okay. I thought he was actually going to Earth and going to Christmas time and experiencing Christmas in, in real time. Okay. I didn't realize that essentially he's going to another realm. Right. Christmas town. Right. Which is which is governed by the God of Christmas. Mm-hmm. See, totally different. I, I was messed up. Right. No, it's 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 weird. It takes a little a, a little bit of time to kind of sort all that out. Yeah. Because Halloween Town is Halloween Town 365 days a year. Which I just thought it was a place that people loved Halloween, so they did it all year round. <laughs> no. Like, I mean, the people, like I said, take their heads off. You know, there's talking heads. Like, they, they're different entities. But they reside in Halloween Town except for when their portal allows them access to the human world to be around Halloween. Now, that's interesting. Yeah. Given the... Uh, given the juridic belief that the veil is thinnest at that time of year, allowing for the transmigration of spirits between one realm and the other. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting what makes the like different schools of thought on what makes the veil thinner or whatever, because Christmas town gets access to the human realm around Christmas time. Okay. And then it's the same that each one of these portals gives you access to this, like, the human world? Well, no, the, the the portal in the groves gives you access to the spirit realms where these spirits reside, waiting access to enact their essence on the human world. Well, that's a lot to sort out. Yeah. That seems like that would be lost on the average listener. I mean, or I mean the average viewer. Probably. I actually went over this movie a couple of times. How did you stand? Never mind. We weren't gonna do that. Yeah. We we love our listeners that like this movie, so we're not we're not gonna hate on it too much. No, no, no. But yeah, I went over it a couple times because I wanted to do it justice. Like I realized the popularity of it, and I was like, you know, if everyone else is watching this a hundred times, I got to give it a couple times over to to look at it. Okay, I got you. But yeah, so it was really interesting the just that that dynamic because I mean, 
jumping to the end, Jack goes back and he's like, oh, I've got all these great ideas for next Halloween, which is when Halloween Town is granted access to the, the human realm. Okay. Interesting. In the movie, he ends up loving Christmas Town so much and he's so sick of doing his Halloween thing, he actually wants to do Christmas. So he steals Santa Claus and he has all the people from Halloween Town trying to make Christmas-esque things, but it's all grotesque because it's in the, the spirit of Halloween. Yeah, this part was really weird. Yeah. Because, I mean, they're not making anything close to an appropriate Christmas gift. Right. Severed heads. Uh-huh. Ducks that have been shot and are bleeding. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's, it's Toys creepy. with fangs and stuff, yeah. But, but I mean, I, I get it. If you were in Halloween Town, this is the thing that you would probably be gifting. Right. It's like all you know. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it makes it makes uh, rational sense. It's logical. But just within the scope of what I'm watching, I'm like, this is weird. Yeah, it's weird for sure. So then Jack ends up, uh, after getting all the toys made and everything, after getting Santa Claus captured... And uh, holding him prisoner, he tries to be Santa Claus. He puts on a beard. He changes his clothes. He takes the the sleigh, and he gets dead reindeer to fly his sleigh. Which I thought was really funny. Yeah, it's interesting. And then delivers all these horrible toys to the boys and girls on Christmas. Effectively ruining what Christmas is supposed to be. So then the adults get involved in this. This might be one of the creepiest aspects for me. So as we know, we're looking at it. We build the worldview. We recognize that each town houses the spirits for these holy days, these pagan holy days. And then at particular times in association with the holy days, these um, realms of spirits are granted access to the human world. Well, as they're granted access to the human world in the movie, all of the adults are faceless. Yeah, this took a moment to realize. Yeah. It's not so much that they're faceless. Like, don't get the idea that you see a picture of them and they have no face. It's the fact that their bodies are shown, but you don't get to actually see their face. It's out of frame. Right, it's well, it's out of or frame, it's hidden within frame, hidden in frame, or there's even a scene with a, a cop. Because I almost thought I was like, oh, maybe I thought this was a thing, and it really wasn't, because it shows a cop, but his face is in a shadow, so you can see the silhouette of his face or of his head, but you don't actually see his face. All of the adults in the human world are face faceless. You don't get to see their faces. Like really creepy. So there's a there's an overt focus on the children that are being exposed to these spirits that, that transcend worlds. And I was like, that's not accidental either. It reminds me of, uh, what were we talking about? Was it, oh, it was Halloween specifically. Do you remember we were talking about Halloween and you were talking about what Halloween is, what these holy days are and how the trauma gets perpetuated generationally. Do you remember um, yeah, we were talking about how when essentially we get introduced to these holidays, it is within the impressional part of our developmental process as children. Okay. And we generally get introduced to these holidays with some sort of pleasure motif attached to it, like candy or presents 
things that a kid's going to emotionally bond with, right? Mm-hmm. And it forms a positive memory in our mind that when we grow older, we replicate the process with our children and we introduce them to the same spiritually toxic uh, experience, but we use the same bait, so to speak. We don't look at it as bait because they're, their traditions embedded with that particular holiday. But we'll use gifts, we'll use candy, we'll use fun time, things that, again, form positive memories and the the life and mind of the child. Okay. And you said that we, we replicate this pattern of behavior just like... Yeah, it was just like, um, like, like someone who's been traumatized and is... And, has been abused. Right. Uh-huh. And it's the same type of process and pattern as those seem the same people who seem to have gotten abused seem to do to others. Like those who are abused, abuse others. Likewise, those of us who are exposed to occult practices and rituals tend to turn right around and expose our children to it. When we think that it's innocent. Right. I thought that was a keen insight. So with that in mind, because we talked about that. And that was like weeks ago. You ain't going to give me time to prepare for that. My bad. That's messed up. But I was carrying that with me as I'm watching. Okay. So the focus of this movie, the focus of the spiritual influence on the human realm is on the children. I really Mm. think you're onto something. Yeah, that's a good point. Because it's a cinematic technique that if you put someone out of frame or out of focus, it it marginalizes them in the mind of the, of the watcher. Yeah. So they did that with every single adult. It's a really subtle tactic. Yeah. Cause it shifts your point of focus. Yes. So it's like that out of sight, out of mind idea mm-hmm. when they're slightly out of, out of focus or they're out of frame or they're partially hidden. Your attention is truncated on, you know, from them and is refocused on whatever is in frame and focus it. And normally in front of you. Right. And especially with a with animation like this, well, with any animation, but you're crafting every aspect, every color, every shadow, every right. angle right. to these look are exactly like you want. Yeah, these are directorial calls. Right. That are not accidental. So when you got to talk with the animators and you have to get with the your, your cinematography people, right? Mm-hmm. You have to make sure that they're shooting the shot the way you want it. So you've probably already storyboarded this out before. So you know exactly what you want in frame, what the focal point should be, how the focus should be. And it's intentional. It's not like, okay, we'll just let the camera roll. We'll get what we get. We'll work it out in post. Mm-hmm. Okay, they just happen to have their their heads out of frame or cut off. Right, all you of know? them. Uh, that, okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll do better next time. It's not that. Right, right. So then... This is this is for me where the story gets a little bit weird because there's there doesn't seem to be a clear line between the protagonist and the antagonist, right? Okay. So we know that it's it, that this story is kind of unfolding from Jack's perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So he's kind of the hero. You're on this journey. You want him to find greater meaning, and then he ends up. Stealing Santa Claus, stealing the sleigh, trying to do Christmas, but then things don't work out very well for him. Like humans end up shooting him out of the sky. Everyone. (laughs) What? Oh, that scene was hilarious. Uh, Careful now. You almost (laughs) hit us. Next scene, he's like, they are shooting at us. 
these cans. He hates these cans. That was funny. Uh, but yeah, so then I guess because the the spirits from Halloween Town are able to watch what's happening to Jack through some type of mystical portal. Mm-hmm. They realize he gets shot out to out of the sky. And even though he can take his head off and stuff, apparently there he's at some danger of dying because they all think that he's dead when he was already dead. That is one of the things that that I wasn't It's weird because Jack is well. actually purported to be an undead spirit. Okay. Like he can't die and he can't feel pain, which is why he can take his head off and there's no issue. Right. So, so it's weird that everyone was concerned about him when his sleigh got blown out of the sky. Yeah. Cause like worst case scenario, you just put the pieces back together and he should be fine. Right. Yeah. Same thing with Sally, the the love interest in the film. Like she jumps out of a window at one point, really weird. Cause it was like she was committing suicide. And then she just stands up after. Yeah. Now she was like a uh, Miss Frankenstein, Miss Frankenstein type of monster. Right. Right. She's all zombied up and put together, stitched and, you know, has her different parts, but apparently she can control those parts telekinetically. Yes. And they can be disattached from her. And she still has control, doesn't feel any pain, doesn't bleed, can just reattach them with a little bit of of a thread, needle and thread. And right. She's good to go. Right. So they're clearly not humans. Right. Unless, the, uh, I guess the only concern with getting Jack blown out of the sky is if Halloween Town isn't granted access to the human realm until next Halloween. So they'd be without Jack for an entire year. Jack would be stuck, yeah. Okay, that's That could be the concern. That's interesting. That makes sense. But yeah, so then Jack falls out of the sky, and he's like, oh, I, I made a mistake. I don't want to do this. Runs back to Halloween Town through a grave. He doesn't have to go back to the grove. He just uses a, a, a grave in a cemetery as a portal goes back to Halloween town and, and this whole time, Mr. Oogie Boogie has had a uh, Santa Claus and all of a sudden he becomes the villain. Like this is just where, I don't know, maybe you can help me out. It gets a little distorted. So Jack's the hero and the bad guy at the same time. And then all of a sudden he wants to release Santa Claus back to save Christmas. And he's not the bad guy that wants to destroy Christmas anymore. He's now the good guy. And then Oogie Boogie, who was helping keep Santa Claus locked in Halloween town is now the villain. Cause he doesn't change his mind with Jack. Like it just seems a little convoluted to me. Right. Um, or, or were you following it better than I did? I, I wouldn't say I was following it better. I, I didn't pick those things up. And I think part of that is due to the character of Jack Skellington. Okay. Uh, one of the things that, the filmmakers do is they tried to demonstrate that he has trouble relating to people's feelings. He's oblivious to typical emotional responses. Okay. And information that's coming off. So like, uh, Sally, the love interest, he's mm-hmm. oblivious to her affection towards him. Okay. He's also oblivious to the distress that Santa Claus is in when he first shows up on the scene after being kidnapped. All right. Right. He tells the kids, make sure he's okay. Uh-huh. So he doesn't seem to be able to really pick up, on those types of subtleties. So I would imagine then he probably couldn't pick up on the fact that maybe he's doing something wrong by taking over Christmas town or taking over Christmas. Interesting. So I don't, if we're being told the story from Jack's perspective, then he probably wouldn't be seeing himself as an antagonist. Okay. Right. Uh huh. That being said, 
the Jack character is important to understand. By Jack character, I don't mean Jack Skellington. I mean the Jack archetype. Okay. So we talked about this in our Halloween episode. The the Jack and within the the taciturn language of the occult, the Jack represents a trickster spirit. Okay. It is a spirit that can go between different realms and can deceive you. Huh. Right? So That's interesting. You you'll see this used and I think we again we mentioned this in the Halloween episode. You see this used in different ways across different films and different franchises, mm-hmm. but it still carries the baseline fingerprint okay of being a a entity that can transgress different realms. Okay. And trying to deceive people on one end of that realm or the other or both. I'm remembering this a little bit, but I really hadn't thought about those dynamics here. In reference to to, to the Nightmare Before Christmas? Yeah, that's interesting. I got you. Yeah, he seems to display those same things and is appropriately named because he is a spirit. Mm-hmm. He is tricking. He's part of the, the trick or treat motif, right? Uh-huh. Coming from Halloween Town. And he is going in between different realms. Like apparently he goes to all the realms of the major holy days. Okay. Because he even brings back the Easter bunny and has to return him. Okay. Okay. Right. So uh-huh. I think he went researching or searching around. To all of them? Yeah. Trying to see what the other realms were like. Okay. And then he presents himself to the human world as Santa Claus. Kind of playing a bit of a trick on them. Now, it's not necessarily designed to be uh, malevolent. Mm-hmm. But still, it's kind of a trick because it's right, it's not, right. It's, it's, it's a bit deceptive. of a deception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think he's aptly named in that sense. Interesting. I also thought it was interesting that he is the pumpkin king, but Halloween Town already has a governmental leader, which is that two faced mayor that you were talking about. Okay. So, so I wonder what he's king over then. I would have to say that he's probably the religious leader of Halloween Town. Well, I went to fandom.com okay. or disney.fandom.com and looked up Jack, and they actually refer to him as the patron spirit of Halloween Town. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. Interesting. That is a, a little bit of a twist there. It is. Huh. This is weird stuff, man. Like I said, not my favorite flick. <laughs> No, no. So what else did you get from it? It seemed it seemed to me, because, again, like kind of tying back to some of the other episodes that we did. We did uh, Blavatsky. We did Alice Bailey. We did Crowley. We did Anton LaVey. And as we were going through those, and they all follow the same type of agenda, the same type of spiritual influence, there seems to be a lot of infighting, right? Alice okay. Bailey got kicked out of theosophy because she was channeling the wrong spirits. Right. Aleister Crowley goes in and out of the, the Golden Dawn and other secret societies. And there doesn't seem to be that real succinct, tight-knit community mm-hmm. when you're dealing with all of these, the there's esoteric. There's a lot of infighting. Yeah. Even amongst the, the Luciferian bloodlines, there's a lot of infighting. Right. So that's what I saw here. You, if, if we're right in the different towns that, correspond to the holy days house these spirits 
it's interesting that this is like a peek behind the curtain to the infighting that happens, that maybe the spirits that have access to Halloween want access to other days as well. You, you know, I never thought about that. That's wild. Yeah. That's real wild. I'm sick of doing my thing. I want to torment people or I want access to the earth on this day, on somebody else's day. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not going back to rewatch it, but <laughs> yo, that's actually really interesting. Like, I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah. And I guess on top of that, the other thing that I noticed, if we're if we are talking about spirits here, Mr. Oogie Boogie, who's kind of made to be the villain, but kind of isn't because it's weird. Uh, Jack goes back to to save Santa Claus and and let him go back to Christmas Town and save Christmas. So the spirit of Christmas has to go back and save the holy day. But Mr. Oogie Boogie, who's supposed to be like the boogeyman, is just a burlap sack full of bugs. So he gets unzipped or un. Um, unwound, if you will. And he's just full of a bunch of bugs. And th this is a little thin, but there's that story in the Bible that it talks about uh, all of those demons being inside that one person. It's like, what's your name? We are Legion because we are many. Okay. So when the villain is kind of this, this bag full of a bunch of other entities and we're talking about spirits, I was like, eh, this kind of seems like Legion. Doesn't, doesn't add a that. lot to it, but it's just... It's kind of subtly tucked in there a little bit. I can see that. So then that happens. It's the end of the movie and everything goes back to the way that it was. Right. Jack yeah. gets this new excitement for Halloween and Christmas is saved because Santa Claus gets to go back. And that's, that's it. A little bit of singing, a little bit of confusion. Everything goes back unchanged. Yeah. It's very anticlimactic ending. Mm-hmm. So here's something I picked up from the same site, uh, Disney.Fandom.com. Okay. That talks about Jack Skellington, which I think gives a little more insight into the character. Okay. It's a quote from him that he makes in a, a, a Game Boy Advance video game called Kingdom Hearts Retrain of Memories. Okay. But he makes a statement. Fear and doubt are signs of a strong heart. They push your heart and they push your heart, strike out in new directions. Without them, your zest for life might fade, as would your taste for fear. And believe me, that would really ruin my fun. Wow. That's really sinister. It is. Huh. That's what Disney allowed for their character that they own. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't surprise me coming from Disney, though. It doesn't, but it definitely pours a little water on the uber clean imagery that Disney likes to maintain for its Disney brand. Right. If you want to be strong, it's the whole like 1984, you know, weakness is strength. Slavery is freedom. All yeah, of that. which is also the that's really the, one of the mantras of Satanism, because you have to invert everything. Yeah. You know, pain is pleasure. Good is evil. Evil is good. You know, up is down. All of that type of stuff you have to invert as a form of Luciferianism because it's about inversions, perversions and backwardness. That's well said. Thanks, man. I like that. You did make a point that Jack seems to be, and I'm jumping around a little bit, but you made the point that Jack seems to be unable to relate to people emotionally, mm -hmm. right? That, and, and, and maybe it's just messed up in my head, but as the problem with the protagonist, we are becoming more emotionally sensitive to a character who's emotionally inept. 
That's, of, that has got to do weird things to you, right? It kind of seems like a trick being played on the audience. Yeah. Which would be right in line with the spirit of Halloween. Sympathize with this character that can't sympathize, sympathize with other characters. Or you, for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. It, it Man, definitely seems like a little subtle trick. That's weird. And we got to be careful because the reality is, is that we, we learn so much more than we'd like to admit from the media, right? Yeah. We don't like to admit how much we're influenced. Do you really want a pizza or do you just want a pizza because of the commercials for a pizza that you saw, right? Like mm-hmm. there's a, there's a level of uncomfortable honesty that I think we have to come to terms with if if we want to look at these things as they really are, because commercials are effective at implanting ideas. They change your buying habits. Music incites emotions and movies actually condition cognitive and emotional reflexes. And without this as a backdrop of knowledge, then all that stuff that we just talked about is going to sound like this. And we don't want that. No, you really don't. So I'm going to ask you, you, you didn't like it, but is this cult classic that has picked up steam over the years and moved beyond just a children-focused film, is it just genius of Tim Burton, or does it really give us a small peek into the spiritual reality of our pagan holy days? I don't think it's just the creative genius of Tim Burton. Uh, I definitely think his creative genius is evident in the product that he produced, but deeper than that, I would have to say that I think that it is definitely a small peek into his perspective of what the spiritual world surrounding Holy Days might function like. Okay. I would be on board. And there was something, not, not to cut you off. But, no, no, you're good. But there was something they said in that Netflix documentary that I, I didn't have an opportunity. I said I was going to do it. I just didn't have time to look this up. But if, if, you're, if you're listening and you're interested, this might be worth checking out. But they talked about the kindred spirit of Tim Burton and the one that actually designed the the characters, like the mm-hmm. claymation. And and they they added emphasis to the spirit that that joined these two. And the way they did it in the documentary made you made it sound like they were gonna go into more detail. Like, what is it? Because and they were like, we do mean spirit. And these two were interested in the macabre, and then they just roll on to other stuff. So there's there might be more in there okay. that, that connects the, the creative mind of Tim Burton and the one that actualized his vision in Claymation. Okay. So that, that might be fun to look into. Yeah, that might be something worth researching. Mm-hmm. But I, I think we've, we've got to be, I'm not going to go as far and say, stop watching this movie, even though part of me might like to say that. But we have to be mindful of the messaging because people do intentionally insert this stuff and we learn from this stuff. And if this is a peek behind the spirit realm and we're sympathizing with the demon of light, you know, we're, we're liable to think that, you know, we're behind this blanket of safety hanging out in Kansas when in reality, you are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. Out there beyond that fence, every living thing that crawls, flies, or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. 
wish to survive, you need to cultivate a strong mental attitude. You've got to obey the rules. Pandora rules. So these aren't just Pandora rules, right? Right. These are spiritual rules mm-hmm. that need to be obeyed. For sure. They need to be ad- adhered to. I mean, if, if you want to be successful, if you don't want your eyes eating like jujubees, that's all I'm saying. It's a very good point. And me and my eyes are like this, son. So jujubees or not, I, I'm not trying to lose them. So you you and your eyes, you're like this? You're tight? Oh, yeah. Okay, that's that's interesting because uh, rule number one is to educate yourself, right? Okay. Got to know your war doctrine. Got to know what the Bible says about this stuff because it's relevant to address this. It says a lot of stuff about your eyes. I knew there was a setup coming up here somewhere. <laughs> Never before in the history of our friendship have you been so enamored and concerned with my relationship with my eyes. Well, I'm concerned. I am. Well, now you concerned are. Concerned about the relationship you have with your eyes. You have an interesting relationship with a microphone on, on occasion. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm just I'm trying to help you out in all these different areas. That's hilarious. So, Scripture tells us in uh, Psalm 101.3, it says, I will not set before my eyes anything that's worthless. So, again, you're going to have to forgive me. As I was doing research for this, I was cracking up because I thought the Bible only said, don't put wicked things before your eyes. That's what I really thought I was going to land on. And it said worthless. And I just got done watching the movie, and I was like, nothing happens in this movie. It ends, and nothing is any different than the way it began. I was like... This is saying don't put the Listen, nightmare before Christmas before your On you're- behalf of our <laughs> listeners who love this movie, it was not worthless. It it wasn't. The the claymation was great. The music was Now I felt interesting. it was pointless, but not worthless. Not worthless. <laughs> yes. There, there is a qualitative difference between the two. So I was cracking up. And again, it says Psalms 119:37. Turn my eyes. He's asking God, turn my eyes away from worthless things. Because scripture warns us that the eyes are the windows to the soul, right? Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. Jack doesn't have any eyes. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. Seems like he might not have a soul either. Interesting. Which now is starting to sound more demonic. Right. Huh. Okay. Okay. Look at scripture, even anticipating Jack Skellington. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. Like that. But it's it's interesting to me because a lot of, I don't want to say a lot of people, I can't speak for other people, but I, I write po- poetry on occasion, right? Some might mm-hmm. say that I'm a hopeless romantic. So this idea, I've used this, this type of terminology, eyes are the window to the soul, to be kind of romanticized, to... If you peer into someone's eyes, you really get to see who they are or whatever, right? This It gives you a window into the person and all this poetic... Don't take take your glasses off. No, no, I'm good now. <laughs> yeah, I need to have some eye protection around you. I want you peering into my soul. That's funny. But windows, <laughs> you can, windows work both ways. Right. It's not. They allow people to look in and you to look out. Right. But that means light passes through. Information passes through a window from both directions. So not only does it allow people to see who you are, but light is infiltrating your soul via your eyes. And it reminds me uh, where scripture anticipates things like this. Cause in Job, I think this is really, really interesting. Job also has an interesting relationship with his eyes. Jason. Yeah, this was actually the one I thought you were going to land on. Oh really? Yeah. Well, I'm, I land- didn't ex- well, I'm no, landing I didn't, here. I didn't expect the Psalms ones. Okay. This is the one I thought you were going <laughs> to, I shouldn't have said land. This is what I thought you were going to lead with. No, I'm landing on it. Okay. Hit okay. it. So I have made a covenant with my eyes. 
to not put anything before. He's, I think he's talking about with his wife, right? He's not going to look on other women or yeah, such Yeah, he actually uses like stronger language, though, I think in the King James, which I made a covenant not to put any vile thing. Okay. But you look up vile, and I was like, uh, that's a pretty descriptive term there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a little bit more than just, I'm not going to look at things that I probably shouldn't. Right. It, it goes way deeper and way, it's way more expansive of a concept than just staying away from dirty little things. Right. It's a, it is an interesting, speaking of concepts, that you make a covenant with your eyes. It denotes that there is a relationship. Like we often talk that there's a relationship between who we are and our brains, the way right. our brains work. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to note these things because we are, as humans with souls and spirits and consciousness, we have actual different parts to us. So we can have a relationship with our brain. We aren't just that. You, you know, know what I mean? A, yeah, no, no, no. That's a really interesting concept because I know some people who actually talk to different parts of their body. Okay. Yeah, I know. That's a fairly dangerous <laughs> lead in, right? Yeah, we could go all types of different directions at this point. Fine, let's just go there. <laughs> all right. So if you got guys talking to their member, right? All right. There there are people it, it's funny and kind of interesting for people to most of the times this is depicted, it's a little crass or crude. Mm-hmm. But there is, I think, certain amount of evidence to suggest that there's an effect that your words can have on your body. Okay. To the degree, like, let's say a guy's getting aroused, right? Mm-hmm. You can speak to that part, like, nope. We're not doing that today. Okay. And might be able to actually reverse that physical sensation. I think that it's kind of in line with the same thing. If I made a covenant with my eyes, you see a certain thing, you know, first off, there is a certain desire that the eyes have to look at certain things. The lust of the eyes. Yeah, but I wasn't going to take it far that far first. Oh, my bad. But no, I thought you were going to lead with that. You're shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you're, you're, you're spot on. It, uh, my point was that I think it can develop into that if it's left unchecked. Okay. Right, but there. Let's not take it to lust. There are certain things that you just like looking at. Like your eyes love motorcycles. Mm-hmm. They do. Right. They you see a hot do. motorcycle. Bing. Your eyes might see the motorcycle before you register that the motorcycle's there. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, now you can put a hot chick in that same category for the man who might struggle a little bit. <laughs> but the point is that there is a possibility to have a relationship with that. Let's say you you you've got a certain type of food that you like. Mm-hmm. Your eyes can be drawn to it. Bam. Oh my. And did you know that the whole concept of the room lights up when you walk in, do you know what that's from? No. Because there's actually a, a physiological shift when you're emotionally attached to something. If you really, really like a thing, uh-huh. your eyes will actually dilate. And let in more light. And let in more light so you can see that thing better. So that whole idea of the whole room lights up when you walk in. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's cool. So when I walk in, does the room get darker or, or Darker. Darker? Yeah, there's even a few moments that I can't see after you walk in. You know, I would say your racism is leaking out, <laughs> but for the sake that I know that that means that your your level of likability on me <laughs> is in a respectable range, I'm okay with that. All right. You know, that's fine. <laughs> can't believe it just went right there. That's crazy. Oh, that's great. 
But no, I, I think that that there can be that type of relationship where you can actually speak to your eyes and say, no, no, we're not, we're not looking at that today. Right. You know, no, we're not going to view that. Even if the eye is like, but I want to. Mm-hmm. Which gets back to Joe being able to make a covenant with his eyes. Right. We, we aren't doing this. Like that's a alpha male move. It is. To be able to establish a protocol with different parts of your body. Now, I remember... Um, this is a bodybuilder who who would kind of do this. Uh, I want to say his name is C.T. Fletcher. Okay. Okay. Now, he was this dude, talks mad trash, right? All right. I think I sent sent you a clip of this guy a long time ago. <laughs> okay. um, but he's, he's doing, there's a real famous clip of him working out, and he's talking to his bicep. And he's literally saying, I command you to grow. And he says, you don't control me. I control you. I tell you when you're tired. You don't tell me. Curl. He said, curl again. And he's just like pumping out. And this is probably like a 50 pound uh, uh, dumbbell. Mm -hmm. He's just hitting it. Bam. I said, grow. Bam. And I'm like, you can do that? You can really talk the parts (laughs) of your body like that and make it do what you need to do? I curl a Snickers bar, but I hadn't got to the point (laughs) where I could tell my bicep to grow. That's funny. Right? So so now I'm looking at my stomach. You will shrink. I have a very rebellious body. <laughs> I, I guess so. <laughs> but one of my sisters is a bodybuilder, and uh, there were several, time, several times in the in the gym uh, that she reminded me that you just focusing, not even speaking. She didn't go to that level, but just thinking about the specific part. Because I'm real good at engaging my mind elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So I'd read a book while doing a, a bicycle or a treadmill or, you know, I'd, I'd listen to a podcast. I'd, I'm doing research, right? I, right. Don't, I don't have time to shut my brain down because I'm in the gym. But I was really, I think after talking to people who are experts in, in this field that I was doing myself a disservice because actually focusing on specific muscle groups as you use them has a influence on their development and your utilization at that moment. I imagine that talking to them adds just one more layer on top of that. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Crazy stuff. Yeah, because, again, this is stuff you're not taught. This is this is stuff that you're not supposed to be thinking about. Uh-huh. And on the, the other side of things, these realities are being exploited. Right. So there are things that you're being shown that will in, intensify the natural desires of your eyes or will exploit other aspects of your physiology in order to allow that part of you to be, to become something that can manipulate you. Right. Uh It becomes a vulnerability. Yeah. So I think it's really important to understand these larger aspects of our, our bounded reality so that we can focus in a more succinct and controlled manner, being able to exercise control over the various things that God has placed within our jurisdiction Mm -hmm. so that we don't fall victim to entities that would try to exploit that for our harm. I would agree. And it's interesting. Like, I don't know. Sorry. I've got all this stuff that was piling up as you, as you were talking. Oh, go ahead. So the several places we see in the Bible, and I didn't even hit them all that there's this idea of, of being, um, mastering the domain of your eyes and what you see, right? What mm-hmm. you allow your eyes to be engaged with. And I think there's this distortion that happens, especially in the world today, that we're like, we can't censor anything. 
you know, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of people in the conspiracy podcaster groups, and you know, we go can, um, censorship is the enemy, and I wouldn't disagree, but we have this weird confusion between the way that a society is supposed to function and the responsibilities of a society and the responsibilities of ourselves. Yeah, I heard this guy say one time, he was like, I am the mayor of a small city with 200 million residents. I control who comes and who goes. Yeah, uh-huh. I was cracking up. All right. Right, I'm dying. <laughs> I was like, never heard it put that way. Yeah. But all right. But the reality is, it's kind of an interesting little idea. Mm-hmm. Because if you kind of view yourself, I don't want to say kind of, if you begin to view yourself as the magistrate of your domain, Mm-hmm. I think it gives you an empowerment to have more control over yourself than if you view yourself as a disassociated victim. Right. Right. Who's just under the ebb and flow of society and different things that happen. Right. And I think this confusion, like people that are pro censorship because they're not mastering their domain. It's not society's responsibility to make sure that things aren't put in front of your eyes. It's your responsibility. Right. And you you, you can't pawn that off on somebody else because that that's not that's not the only way that a society collapses. But it's the beginning as you start pawning off what's personal responsibility and making it the responsibility of the state. Yeah, man. It seems like there's like a a, a large amount of importance that scripture places on what our eyes are exposed to and the inherent ramifications of illicit exposure, Mm -hmm. right. Of certain material, you know, we should, I guess at the very least care more about what we put in front of our eyes, you know, film, what we read, what we think about, even what we imagine. It's a whole different part. You know, the mind's eye, right? Not just the physical eye. Yeah. For the sake of making sure, again, that we're not victimized and harmed. I would agree. I think that takes us right into world two, which is do not cede any ground to your enemy. Right. That's part of the censorship process or self, what the Bible would call self-control. Mm-hmm. You know, being able to put the necessary fences and, and, and boundaries up to control yourself does a very good job at averting initial contact with the enemy because it gives you an exclusionary zone. It gives you a standoff zone. So it gives you some time to react and be able to do things and handle an assault without it being right up in your face. Right. Right. If, if you have a multi-perimeter, multi-buried perimeter, then you've got some time to react to an assault mm-hmm. versus if you don't have any of that, they can get right to you right quick and you can have deadly force in your face. You don't want that. You don't. You want to actually take the deadly force to the enemy. Mm-hmm. And we, it's it's interesting. The Bible offers a, a counteroffensive strike package that gives us authorization and instruction on what to do to address the enemy. Okay, and we're told three things. So we should memorize this, have it written on the back of the hand, have it written on the inside of the eyelid. You should see it every time you <laughs> close your eyes. I got three orders from the king. I'm to expose the enemy's position. I'm supposed I'm supposed to resist the enemy. And I'm supposed to cast down the things that he's got going on. All right. Right? Mm-hmm. These are all three authorizations for action. That's good because, you know, some people are like, what can I do? You got three marching orders right there. 
Yeah, you don't you don't typically do this from the, from the couch. Nope, you have to get involved in the fight. You know, Ephesians five eleven gives us the biblical authorization that tells us don't have any fellowship with the works of darkness. That's the equivalent, uh, or or that's the overarching command that gives the spiritual precedence for I don't set th- certain things before my eyes. Right, right. Mm-hmm. We're, we're told in James five seven. Subject yourself to the authority of scripture and use that authority to resist the devil. Don't do it in your own strength. Don't do it in your own mind. Don't do it in your own logic. You have to revert back to what scripture says. Jesus shows shows the perfect example of that by constantly quoting scripture back. Right. That's critical to understand. And that leads to the third course of action established by 2 Corinthians 10, 5, which is demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against what God has said is true. There's things that keep people from knowing him. Those are three things that we got to do. Yeah. So we got to, first off, make sure we we cultivate a strong mental attitude because mm-hmm. there's no point in getting to the fight and then you falter, curl up in a ball, and cry. It's not going to work. Right. But once you get there, you got things you have to do. You got to expose the enemy's position. You have to re- oppose and resist what he's doing by prov- providing offensive counterfire. And then you have to go as far as to actually take back over strongholds that he's established. You got to tear up everything. I like it. Sounds like a lot of work. It is, but we're not done yet. Okay, what we got. Takes us to rule number three. This will round out the rules of engagement, right? Yep. Got to pray like it's all up to God, but work like it's all up to us. You got to do both of those. So I think one of the things that we can pray for is that he gives us the supernatural ability to see the messaging that's in these movies. I like that. Like, I like think that's good. We can, we can learn and we can practice, but some of this stuff is supernaturally embedded. So some of it is going to have to be supernaturally exposed as well. Yeah. We got to have, we got to ask for discernment. Yes. That's critical because some, like you said, some of the stuff you're just not going to get by natural logical means. Right. You're going to need a spiritual revelation to be able to point out and say, Hey, that's, that's really what this is. Yeah. Because some of the stuff is super subtle and very, very savvy. Mm-hmm. I think we should also pray that not just guides us within the movies, but before we even get there. Like, should we or should we not watch this movie? You know, some of it we just have no business getting to. Doesn't mean it needs censored. It means that we have to be masters of the domain and choose not to put that stuff before our eyes because it's just not worth it. That's a tough one, but that, that's a really good point. Yeah. So then we go to work. We prayed a little bit. Now we got to work a little bit. We have to actively work to pull the film off of our eyes because they're they're laying it on thick. This colors, just like if you put on glasses that are tinted, it it changes the way you see everything. Mm -hmm. When you engage in media, commercials, television shows, movies, and they have embedded messaging and it's displayed across the window to your soul, across your eye, it starts to develop this film. And what that does is changes and colors the way that you perceive everything. We have to work against that and strip the the lies, the bad ideas, and the indoctrination off of our eyes so we can see clearly. That's such a great point. I don't think many people, myself included, stop long enough to consider Every movie I watch is going to put some sort of a film over my perception of reality. Mm-hmm. It's going to create a filter. Yeah, and it's so thin that you don't recognize it's almost imperceptible. Right that it that it builds up. Nah, that is really good. It's crazy. 
We, and we have to, one of the ways we do this is by engaging our minds. You have to, have to engage your mind. It's so tempting in a world that just drains you, has you working more hours than you've got in the week, has, has got you spending more than you're making. You just, at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, you've got nothing left. So when you sit in front of the TV, when you, if anyone reads the newspaper anymore, all of it goes right past your defenses because it's a system that's set up. It's the satanic control matrix that has broken you down and left you open to this messaging. We cannot give in. We have to engage our minds, especially when we put screens in front of our eyes. Touche. And lastly, or maybe firstly, Maybe you could do this first before you do the other, before you're too tired to do all the other stuff, <laughs> maybe share the show, you know, let people know, Hey, if you, if you think we're funny or anything else, maybe, or maybe just hoping that someone else could appreciate it. Send it, send it funny. out. One of my, uh, one of my really good friends hit me up and they were like, uh, I was at work and it's talking to a gentleman there and found out that he's the son of, uh, a pastor and had a conversation. Guy was like, okay, I'm living a little different. I don't really want to do the whole conservative thing like that anymore. And they were talking, and they were like, you know, there's a podcast that you should listen to. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't just throw them over there on us. What are you talking about? Uh, I was like, you got to have the uncomfortable conversation. That's funny. And then that was good for them. Mm-hmm. But but there is a there is a place for forwarding these types of things, not in the hope that we have that conversation per se with that person, Mm -hmm. but within the hope that we can be a springboard for a larger conversation. Right. Because a lot of this stuff happens by way of relationship. End of the day, there's people that our listeners have access to that we, we just don't. And people tend to listen a little more carefully and closely to someone they know and someone they don't. Right. And that's kind of the value of a show like this. We can help create that platform, but we can't actually leap off and be the springboard. Right. I mean, we can breathe the springboard. We can't just actually leap off the springboard. Right. We need help. We need support. So it's a relationship. It's a both and type of thing. For sure. So they can find us at ORPpodcast.com. If you're interested in, in show notes or any of the resources that we use, you can go to the drop down menu. Uh, podcast drop down menu in show notes, right? Is it mm-hmm. still like that? And then uh, look for the air date of the show, and uh, there'll be extra information, you know, stuff that we used. Maybe the the link to, or at least the information on that that Netflix documentary. You know where exactly you can you can find that episode if you're interested. Right. And uh, here's the last thing: when it's all said and done, you've got to remind yourself of what Scripture tells us. What's that? That we are never alone. And we're not fighting alone. God has promised to never leave us. And we have that community of believers all over the world and a loving God that actually intervenes on our behalf. Because one day, one day we will actually be able to see clearly. One day the window to our soul won't be muddied with lies. One day our enjoyment won't include entertainment. That is letting things in and holding us captive and holding us down. One day we will be free to enjoy pure pleasures forevermore. But until then, we are deployed to this dystopian rock 
where we have to filter through embedded messages in movies, TV shows, and video games in order to remove the film that they put over our eyes.